Hey everyone, welcome to another Svelte Radio podcast. Today we have another guest with us, but before we get to that, let's do introductions. I'm Kevin, I run Svelte School, and I'm heavily involved in the Svelte Society community stuff for Svelte. Yeah, that's, that's me. I'm Sean, I work at AWS on developer experience, and most recently I've also been working on finally shipping my own site in Elder.js, which is kind of the new Svelte static site generator, it's very fast because it basically ships almost nothing. And yeah, I really like it. Hi, I'm Anthony, and I'm a CTF Bianc, which is a platform for uh, experience booking. I'm also a Svelte core maintainer. I'm involved in Svelte Radio, Svelte Community. Apparently a lot of stuff that I don't know how to get involved in, but there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. And the the guest for today is Mark, Mark Volkman. Is that how you say it? That's correct. Yeah. So what's your deal? Where? <laughs> yeah, so I'm a software consultant in the St. Louis area in, in Missouri, and I work at Object Computing. And so we provide training and consulting and all kinds of software development. And so these days, I mostly focus on web development, but I really work in the full stack. Awesome. So uh, you've written a, a book on Svelte, right? It's probably That's why right. you're here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So how was that experience? It was quite challenging. So I have a long history of writing. I write a lot of articles for my company that get published on our website and sent out to subscribers to those articles. And I've been speaking at conferences and user groups for a long time and teaching classes. And so I had a long history of writing. But this is the first time my writing has been examined this closely by a large number of reviewers. And so it was uh, quite an experience trying to deal with all the feedback that I was getting. Nice. So why Svelte? Uh, so for me, it's all about developer experience. There are so many reasons to choose Svelte, but I really focus heavily on at least my own productivity. And I find that I'm just way more productive in Svelte. A lot of that has to do with the features that are, are built in that make things so simple and result in you writing less code to get things done. For me... Some of the top features are the way that you deal with state inside a component and the way that you share state across component using stores. Both of those are just so much simpler than what I see in any of the other web frameworks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it really I actually, I looked, uh, I like this part that I actually, I liked it so much that I kind of took a screenshot of it. In like chapter five, you have this table on component communication options and you've got props, slots, events, context, module context and stores. And I think that's a, that's a really good recap of, of how these things go. And, and I don't know, I never sort of had it put so clearly to me, but I, I do have a special preference for stores. They were the first felt talk that I did at the New York City Svelte Society meetup. Right. When you compare it to what you have in other frameworks like Redux and React or Vuex and Vue or NGRX and Angular, it's just a night and day difference in the complexity level. Yeah. So your book is pretty uh, comprehensive. I've sort of skimmed through it, read parts of it, and it seems sort of like the tutorial, but on steroids. It covers pretty much everything. It feels like a good next sort of step after doing the tutorial. Yeah, I think that's right. I would recommend that people go through the tutorial because that's excellent. But I did really aim to show almost every feature of Svelte and Sapper and have a simple code example of everything and then show it in a wider context in a sample app that we build throughout the book. So I think even for myself, it will be a, a reference going forward to look up how to do uh, various things. And that's really kind of the style of my writing on other topics is to be a reference that I can go back to when I forget how to do something, which is quite often because as developers, we have so many things to remember that we just can't. We have to have a resource to look things up from time to yeah, time. Absolutely. I noticed when I was, I was actually reading the book from when it was kind of in more early stages. So there were obviously chunks missing and stuff. I was reading it online. And I noticed uh, there were URLs and things like that that were probably due to go out of date pretty quickly. And I just wondered, as, as a person writing a book for something that is quite fast moving, like technologically, how do you keep track of what's changed and what you need to update and what hasn't? And Yeah, so that's a tough challenge when it comes to URLs. And the uh, editor from the publisher encouraged me to not include very many of those things. But I kind of push back on that. I understand things go out of date. But I would rather have good material out initially that 
will go out of date, then just skip it altogether. And so my tendency was to include as much as possible, even if there was a danger of it going out of date. An example of this is that in the chapter where I talk about different ways that you can deploy a Svelte app, and I get into some details about services like uh, Netlify. So I was listing a lot of details about the plans, including the prices. And they, didn't, wow. <laughs> uh, they, they didn't want me to include the prices. So I ended up scaling it back to just describe the different tiers that are available. So I think that was a good compromise. But I didn't just want to say, go to the site and see what the current plans are without trying to give some idea of what the current offerings are. And what you can and what you can't do with each tier. That's, I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, I think that's, that's a nice that's thing. That's right. Uh... Yeah. And on that topic, that's an example where the things I'm discussing in that chapter are not very specific to Svelte. They're just something that you would want to know as a web developer. And there are a lot of chapters in the book that are like that. For example, when I dive into details of kinds of testing you can do, and at the unit test level, there are some things that are specific to Svelte. But then when you get into end-to-end testing or accessibility testing, that has nothing to do with Svelte. But I wanted to include it anyway because it's part of the workflow that you'll go through when you write a Svelte application. So on that note, would you say that the desired audience of your book is a developer getting into web development? Or would you say it's more of a Svelte user? Or would you say it's more of like an advanced post-tutorial Svelte user? Where, or is, does it cover all three? I want to believe that it covers all three, but it's certainly good if coming into it, you have some idea of the process of web development. Maybe you've used some other framework before, and then what I'm showing are the specifics of how to do those things in Svelte, but also the things that don't have to do with Svelte, as I said, things like end-to-end testing. So if you're aware that end-to-end testing is a thing that exists, the book will help you get into implementing that. Cool. I, I wanted to call out some of the things, you know, I think just kind of reading through parts of the early chapters, I wanted to call out things I really liked. Like I thought it was very approachably written, but you weren't really sort of kind of talking down to people. And it's always a, a nice balance as to how much you want to explain versus how much you assume uh, people sort of bring their context. I, I really like the await example uses dog CEO, which is exactly what I use. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> that endpoint. And like, I was trying to count like how many examples you worked out, but it's got to be like dozens, like <laughs> like every every single chapter, every single sub chapter has like a different example. And yeah, I really appreciate that. Like it, it actually would be a good to have like a, a list of repls at the end of like, here's everything that we walked through. But those are really good. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the REPLs because as I just found out yesterday, I was invited to speak at Svelte Summit coming up. And so I'm going to be giving a talk on animations. And that's straight out of chapter 10 in the book. And it has a number of examples. And I have REPLs for all of those. And so in that talk, I'll be giving URLs to all of those REPLs and we'll, we'll walk through all of that code. That's awesome. Yeah. That's something I haven't really figured out. I think you're, t- are you talking about the flip animation? Is that? Is, yes, is that that's one of them. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Uh, I still don't know how it works. I still don't know how it works. So <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good, good talk for you then, Sean. The crossfade yeah. animation can be kind of complicated to grasp what's going on. And so I'll definitely cover that. And then a really interesting custom one that I build in the book is one that takes a chunk of text and it makes it appear that it's kind of spinning down a drain. And so it rotates a couple of times. And as it's rotating, it shrinks until it gets to zero size and just disappears from the screen. And so that was a fun one to implement. And what's really surprising about it is how little code it takes to do something like that. And it really emphasizes how Svelte animations are built on CSS, which of course gives excellent performance and doesn't block the main thread, all of those kind of benefits. Yeah, yeah, you can pause and, and reverse it midway. That's always like a, huh, like, <laughs> I yes. never really thought about that. Right. <laughs> I had a question on, on the chapter just before that. So the chapter just before that, chapter nine, is on routing. That's notably a sore point in, in Svelte. Did you have any struggles writing that chapter? <laughs> you know, I didn't have any struggles because I've done so much of that in other frameworks. And I think my opinions on that don't line up with a lot of other people's. It seems that there's a sentiment now that people want there to be an official router that ships with Svelte. But for a lot of applications I write that are smaller, 
they don't need for the URL to change when I go to what you think of as a different page in the app because I don't need the users to be able to bookmark a page inside it. I understand there's a lot of apps that do need that, but if you don't need it, you can just have a hash map of this name goes to this component and I have a store that tells me which one is the current name. And so it's really easy to write the code that just displays the correct one. So that's what I refer to as the manual routing approach in the book. But then going beyond that, if you need the URL to change, it's so simple just to use hash routing. The only negative I know of is that some people don't like seeing a hash symbol as part of the URL. (laughs) (laughs) And now a word from our sponsor. Are you looking to get better at building websites in Svelte? Well, you're in luck. Level Up Tutorials has tutorials on how to get started. Scott is an excellent teacher and has courses on a broad range of web development topics. So if you want to support the show and learn Svelte at the same time, check out the Svelte for Beginners and Sapper for Beginner courses at svelteradio.com slash level up. Svelte Radio is currently looking for another sponsor. If you're interested in seeing this show continuing and want to support it, you can reach out to me. I'll drop a link in the show notes as well. Right. So I think you you mentioned before we had a small break that you have a pretty simple approach to hash routing, mainly because it fits your requirements. And some people just don't like the optics of, of having a hash in the in the route. But if you don't mind that, then the solution for that can be pretty simple and, and it's pretty easy to integrate with Svelte. That's right. And if you decide you don't want to use hash routing, the next thing I talk about in the book is using a library called Page.js, which is not specific to Svelte. That's also a very easy option, and it's more capable than rolling your own. But I think some people are looking for a more Svelte-specific solution. And so I know that there are some out there. I mention a few in the book. One in particular, Routify, seems to be getting pretty popular now. And then the other thing I would mention is that if you really want a nice routing solution, maybe you should just use Sapper because it's all built in and Sapper's routing is also very, very good. It's funny that you mentioned people want a Svelte-specific solution because that seems to be quite the thing. So if you look at anything like React or Vue, you'll find that people like to have these wrapper libraries that wrap existing vanilla components such as PageJS. And what I found, obviously, one of the things I like about Svelte is that you don't have to have these wrapper libraries. Um, it's very easy to integrate vanilla JavaScript libraries with Svelte without any any sort of intermediary or wrapping thing around it. So, so yeah, it's interesting that people want a Svelte-specific solution to routing, although obviously it's quite nice to have that. Right. It kind of reminds me of the way that a lot of Angular developers will say, how could you use a framework that doesn't give you a solution for creating HTTP requests? Don't you have to have that? <laughs> Why they think that uh, Fetch API isn't sufficient is not clear to me. Yeah. Yeah. That always gets me, like when people ask about Axios. That's another one of those libraries, right? I get that it supports probably some obscure Internet Explorer version, right? But it just seems like a lot of work to when you have Fetch. Right. I mean, so the fetch polyfill supports that as well, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> In about three lines. I think I come from a mainly React experience. And I would say like for React, it's actually kind of needed, mainly because it's so strongly opinionated in the functional programming sense that you have to adapt it. You used to adapt it with component lifecycle methods, and now you have to use use effect. And it's always dark magic, so much so that they, don't, they recommend that you don't write your own <laughs> and you use other people's uh, wrappers. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely grates me a lot. Like, I don't want to look at my package JSON and have like React dash Redux dash, and then a, a billion other things that I also, yeah. also import. So I, I definitely appreciate that about Svelte. Like, like, and I think the phrasing that I adopt from Rich Harris is that let's stay as close to the metal in terms of the native language of the web, which is HTML. And then when you when you write components, uh, let's let's stay close to that. And surprisingly, it's it's a lot easier to integrate everything else. So a thing related to this in the book is that in chapter one. When I'm describing the features of Svelte, I'm comparing it to other frameworks like Angular and React and Vue. And early versions of the book were a bit more negative about the other frameworks. And I was encouraged to tone that down (laughs) as to not offend people. But at the same time, if you don't draw comparisons, then people don't have a reason to choose Svelte over the other options. 
But I've done a lot of React development myself, and I've also worked in Angular and Vue, but I have the most experience in React. I've been away from it for a bit, doing mainly Svelte, but I've had to help some other developers in my company with React applications. And it's interesting going back to it after being away for a month or two, seeing it with fresh eyes. And I think there's sort of a boiled frog thing that is happening where if you're in any of these ecosystems, you gradually learned how they work over time. And when one more feature gets added, that doesn't seem so bad. It's just one new thing, and you already know the previous 20 things, so it's all good. But it's sort of the boiled frog scenario where you don't realize the water is getting hotter and it's getting hotter. If you can break away for a month and do svelte and then go back to some other framework, I think you'll be shocked at how complicated the code seems, and you just didn't realize it before because you were in it every day. Yeah, that's my experience as well. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think think obviously like (laughs) criticism can come in many forms. And I think criticizing to draw comparisons maybe is is warranted, but it's got to be done in a way that doesn't sort of rile people up because there's no point, I guess, warring over frameworks. You know, you use the one that's best for the thing you're trying to achieve. And obviously I'm quite heavily biased here, but I think that in my my opinion or my experience even, it's almost always been felt has been the ideal framework for that task. It really is quite adaptable to stuff. So yeah so yeah really well, i'll go even further like most people don't pick frameworks because of the quality of the, the framework they just pick it because of the jobs available <laughs> that's i mean that's how i got to got to react right and then yeah and then you, you, the only thing you look for is like okay how do i how do i become a react expert how do i get advanced react so things that are complicated actually give you value because then you can you can turn around and say like hey you can hire me because i, I know all these things but you don't really question like, hey, do we actually need all, all this stuff? Yeah. So that's kind of a uh, similar journey. I, I kind of call it Stockholm syndrome. I wonder, Kev, if you living in Stockholm, if if you if <laughs> Swedish people call it Stock- <laughs> Stockholm syndrome or not? <laughs> we we do call it Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the reaction, but, but yeah. Well, <laughs> you do know where where it comes from, right? The uh, yeah, like kidnapping. The, kidnapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or was it a bank robbery? You guys know better than me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So getting back to the book, one of the downsides that I think you mentioned, you know, you, you, we mentioned Sapper, so I thought it was like a natural transition point. One of the downsides that you mentioned is that Sapper is not 1.0. As pretty much like it's, you seem pretty in favor of Sapper. Obviously, it's a big part of your book. What are your thoughts on Sapper and production readiness and versioning and, and all that stuff? Well, so I hear a lot of talk among the uh, core contributors that there could be changes coming in regards to modularizing parts of Sapper, breaking it up, and maybe some things that are built into Sapper now won't be built in later, but will be an optional thing that you can use if you want to. But I just feel like there's so much benefit you get from Sapper that even if in the future I would have to make some changes to an app to work with the new version of Sapper, I think it's worthwhile. There's just too many good things in Sapper right now amazing things like how code splitting works and how prefetching works. And I think with every feature of Sapper, you could conceivably just use Svelte and hand add those things yourself, but that's just too much work. You might as well start with those things out of the gate. So I would not shy away from using Sapper now, even though it's not 1.0. I would just be ready to make some changes in the future. And I'm guessing that it won't be hard to make those changes. Yeah. Do you have any inside information for us? Uh, about how it's going to be split up? No, I, I'm asking Anthony if he has any, oh, okay. uh, oh, any inside. inside information. I mean, I, I don't think there's a concept of inside information. I think that would be kind of against the open source <laughs> framework and mentality. Yeah. Uh, there are definitely discussions about breaking Sapper up, either becoming a series of plugins or it becoming some sort of a thing that pumps out I guess units of application that, that are not one big monolithic application in order that you can deploy them more cleverly or, or you know, to, to gain speed or performance optimizations. It's all really up in the air. The best place to find out about it is the RFCs. And there are a lot of RFCs right open right now. And a lot of them sort of overlap or depend on each other, which is obviously a bit confusing. But I think it's a matter of, yeah, having this this wider discussion to determine really what people want um, what is sort of optimal, what is doable, hopefully chucking things like HMR and stuff in there, which has been requested for quite a long time, 
so there's just there's yeah there's lots going on i think mark's absolutely right modernization is kind of one of the main the main things and i think that the kind of the crux of that is because maintaining obviously sapper is quite unique in that it supports any bundler it's not opinionated about what bundles it uses and when i say any bundler i mean any of two bundlers webpack or roller (laughs) and the reason that it can do that and the reason that it is also a problem is because that means it's got to be quite heavily baked into into the core of sapper so i think that one of the main goals is to get just to pull that out extract that so that either it becomes completely bundle agnostic or it becomes completely bundler specific one or the other will definitely be an improvement on kind of where it is now so so yeah there's a lot going on a lot going on oh exciting i saw one issue about 0.29 that ben yeah, opened i think, I think. Uh, yeah ben ben's working on on 0.29 well, so working on it, he writes most of the PR, to be honest, he's, he's a machine, I don't know how he does it. But uh, <laughs> but he also manages to triage all the things together into kind of releasable units of code. So so that's, yeah, that's really good. 0.29 should be, again, a quite a minor change, nothing breaking, but but quite a nice change. And then meanwhile, Li Lihan Tao is, why oh, can't I say his name? Tan Li, Tan Li Hao. Li Hao, Li Hao. Li Hao Tan. <laughs> I got it right four, six times, sure, sure I got it right. Um, I always get the names mixed up. But essentially, he's busy working on all the PRs for Svelte itself. So a lot of the uh, commits there right now, which are uh, quite hard to review because they're quite intrinsic, but some pretty exciting stuff going on there that's been in, in demand for quite a while, like slots and stuff. Exciting. All right. So let's get back to the book. So I have some questions in general about like writing about Svelte, because for me, some parts of Svelte are a bit harder than others. And I'm just curious, which ones do you find the hardest to explain? Yeah, so I would far. say uh, one of the most difficult parts to write for me was when I was trying to explain how service workers are supported by Sapper. So I only had minimal experience with service workers myself. So I really had to dig in and describe all the different caching patterns that you can implement, which is another example of a thing in the book that's good for web developers to know, but maybe isn't so specific to Svelte. Yeah. So that was probably one of the most challenging parts of the book. All the rest I could generally learn from looking at the tutorial and looking at the API and writing some sample code. And before I even got involved in writing the book, I had already written a fairly long article about Svelte. I think it's around 45 pages. And that's linked in the link that Sean shared to my other articles. So I had that as a starting point before I even began on the book. Interestingly, uh, Manning was a little hesitant to have me start on it because I had written that article. They kind of have a feeling that if you've done a lot of the writing before you contact them, they won't be able to get you to change it to fit their writing style. And that was a challenge because I have a habit of really focusing on seeing how few words I can use to describe a thing. And that's not what book publishers are looking for. They want more flowery kinds of sentences. And I'm not used to writing in that way. I'm used to trying to be very concise in my explanations. So there are more words in the book than there would have been if there were no editors. Maybe it (laughs) results in something that's easier for people to read, but uh, not all of it is exactly my normal writing style. Hmm. That's interesting. Was it a stretch? Like, yeah, you know, I I have a question about the book writing process itself because I've never written, I've never worked with a publisher like Manning. Was it a hard sell to even pitch Svelte as like a market that they might be interested in? Or It was very hard. Without naming the publishers, I'll say that I was approached by a lesser known publisher before I got started asking me to write a book on Svelte because they saw that article. And I didn't want to do it because I thought that it wouldn't get marketed very well because this was a smaller publisher and then I wouldn't sell very many copies. So then I thought, well, if there's some interest in this, I ought to approach some bigger name publishers and see if they would let me write for them. And I was rejected by two big ones who thought that there wasn't enough market yet. And then finally Manning accepted. So that was discouraging that I couldn't get some of the other publishers to be on board. So yeah, that was tough to get going. Sounds like they're lost, say, Mark. It's really the chicken and the egg problem, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's a lot of what the work is left to do was felt, which is the code is great. And then we need to create a lot of noise around it, create a healthy community that's that looks like there's a lot of stuff going on. That's where publishers are kind of look to those kinds of sort of secondary indicators to to evaluate these things, right? So we all have to do our part and and then we can show like someone's written a book on it and then that will be the basis point for other people also writing it as proof points for other pitches, like adopting it at work or writing their own books. Right. So you're asking about the process of writing the book. And one thing that I didn't know before getting into this was the number of different kinds of people that would be reviewing the book for me. So maybe the process is a little different based on the publisher, but at Manning, you are assigned a development editor that helps you get started with the book. And this person is responsible for knowing the pattern of Manning books and making sure that your book fits the pattern. They're not necessarily a technical person. They're just good at English and grammar and they know Manning books. And then you're assigned a technical editor and then many other technical reviewers that are looking at everything. Then there's a person that's responsible for executing all the code in your book to make sure that they can get it to work on their machine. And then finally, there's a copy editor that is extremely picky about everything (laughs) that you've said. So one interesting part is that when you're getting started and you're working with that development editor that is not so technical, a very frequent piece of feedback that you'll get is, do you think readers will know what this term means? And mm. most, of the, most of the time, the answer is, I sure hope so, or they shouldn't be reading this book. <laughs> but, but they don't know because they're not a technical person. And so just to give you an example, of course, when you first start talking about Svelte, one of the things you have to say is, Svelte is a compiler. So I get the feedback, will the readers know what the word compiler means? Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> so... I ended up having to add a note in the book to explain what a compiler was, but I would hope that most people that want to learn Svelte already know that word. Can I uh, interject with an interesting story here that's sort of related? A few years ago, I used to work for J.K. Rowling, you know, the Harry Potter lady. And uh, really? (laughs) Yeah, and so she obviously has got a whole publishing company that's kind of built into her main office where I worked. But they have a girl they employ there who works for the publishing side who is actually like, she's like the Harry Potter Bible and everything that JK writes, she then reviews to make sure it's factually correct, which I think is so like, it's almost back to front. So I found it really amusing. But yeah, she she fact checks for consistency and chronology because there's multiple chronologies in, in Harry Potter as well, right? Because it's, there's the real time and then there's wizarding time and then there's the, the time when you discover things in, in the oh, books wow. and it's, it's, it's crazy. So she, her responsibility is to kind of do all that sort of stuff. I thought it was quite fascinating. Yeah. It's so interesting to to hear like how it actually works in publishing. Yeah. I've never really known a whole lot about it. Yeah. There's a lot of references to the appendixes and like, you know, if you need to know what fetch is, go to appendix B because, <laughs> you know, right. there's a lot to cover. So I, yeah. I, pre- I appreciate that. There's a lot in there. There's even Did- stuff on MongoDB. Wow. Yes. Right. <laughs> Did you guys uh, see that there was a like an infographic floating around a couple of months or years ago about the shape of the front end? Uh, like, this is what you should know as a front end developer. Oh, really? And it was this huge map of, of yes. things. Yes, I've it's, seen it's that. Impo- it's impossible to like, <laughs> have everything in a book, right? But yeah, yeah. every year there, every them. year there's one. But I think that's a nice point to transition to a little bit more broadly about uh, Mark, your, your history as a, as a developer. So I recommend everyone go to his site. We're going to put this in the, in the show notes. Uh, so there's two sites. One, Object Computing, where it kind of has his, his sort of publication history. Going back to 2000, that's the earliest one with Ant. I don't even know what that is. but <laughs> Yeah, probably for the best. <laughs> uh, and, then, and, then, and then there's, this, there's uh, this Mark's own blog on GitHub, and that's more recent writing, it looks like. Yeah. How do you sort of think about what you've seen over the past 20 years in terms of your, your development experience and yeah. uh, how your interests have moved, where, where you think web development's going, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I dropped one more link in the chat, which is just my homepage, which has even more links to some technical resources. But if you restrict things to web development, then when I started, it was just raw DOM manipulation. And then I got into using jQuery. And then after that, I started using Angular 1. I did that for a few years. 
And uh, then, as happened with most people, when there was the debacle of waiting for Angular 2 and it was announced, but it wasn't coming and it wasn't coming, and then a lot of people jumped on React. I was part of the group that did that. Then Angular 2 came out, and I ended up doing some of that all the way through Angular 7. I have to say I'm, I'm really not a fan at all of Angular. It's my least favorite of the frameworks because it just seems so verbose and so much more complicated than the others. Then I got into Vue for a while, enough that I was able to do a half-day workshop on Vue at the Midwest JS conference, and I, I wrote a couple of apps in Vue. And I like Vue just fine, but I don't like that when you define components, you're defining this big object literal with properties that describe your component. Obviously, I like the Svelte approach much better. And so that's pretty much my history on front-end web development. But before that, I was working in a lot of other languages. I've done quite a bit with Ruby. And before that, I was a Java developer for about 15 years. Yeah, but these days, it's almost all JavaScript. Although lately, I've been starting to dip my toes into some Python uh, just because it seems to be getting so popular and I felt like I should know something about it. And so one of the interesting pages you'll see on my blog site, if you go under the Python category, there's a link that says Python compared to JavaScript. <laughs> and that's something that I've done very recently. And so it's a very long blog post showing side-by-side -side comparisons of almost every feature of the language. And so you could see, here's how I would do it in JavaScript. Here's how I would do the same thing in Python. Wow. Is that style of blogging sort of a way for you to, to learn about new stuff as well? It is, definitely. And it's yeah. certainly a pattern that I've fallen into is that if I decide a thing is worth learning, then I'll really dive into it. And I have this innate fear that I'll forget what I've learned. And so I have to write it down. And then after I've written it down, I feel like, boy, it's such a waste if I'm the only one that benefits from this. So I have to polish it up and put it out in some form so that other people can benefit from it as well. And so that makes it so I never can say, I'm interested in this thing. Let me look at it for a few days. For me, it's if I'm interested, I'm going to spend two or three months on it and document it well and maybe end up giving a talk on it. And I kind of force myself to do that before I'll allow myself to go on to the next thing because of that fear that if I don't do it, I'm going to forget it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, it's great because the output of that is, is fantastic. So that's, uh, yeah, I think I, I feel like I dip my toes in things too quickly and sort of move between things a lot. And I, I often yeah. feel like I should be more, you know, that, that approach you've got there of doing two months and three months and something and really understanding it before you sort of draw your own comparisons is, is really valuable. Yeah. It's interesting because even for Svelte, I think that's that's the case. Like you at first you 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 know the basics and then uh, I'm gonna do a an action marketing bit here. Because after a couple of months you learn about actions and then you get really excited about Svelte. <laughs> so I I imagine it's the same for, for most other things where there are some features you don't really get as a beginner, but then you it clicks and you understand it and you, you get really excited. Right. I mean, this this blog, like I'm still sort of diving into it, but there's so much other very current stuff like GitHub Actions. The way that you use extensions for GitHub, like your GitHub looks totally different from, <laughs> from any GitHub I've seen. <laughs> I think there's a lot of serendipity here. The only criticism I have is that you don't seem to have an email sign up where I can sort of keep it keep informed. Oh yeah, I suppose I need to add that. I haven't looked into how to how to do that. I've never been into RSS feeds or anything like that. But yeah, I should look into that. Tiny letter. It's free. Goes up to 5000 subscribers. Yeah. Ah. Okay, tiny letter? Yep. Uh, okay. It's a it was a startup acquired by Mailchimp, but it's free forever and if you get beyond 5000 subscribers, they'll let you um, export to Mailchimp. Okay, I'll look into that. But yeah, you've even, you even have like JavaScript Temporal, which is like the new API coming to, to JavaScript. And you have a whole thing on this. And I was like, I, I, I would read this, you know, as a blog post if any of it existed. That's a very recent one that I added, the JavaScript Temporal part. It was hard for me to figure out what was going on. But after I spent enough time with it, a pattern kind of emerged. And so that's what I've documented here. And, and now it's much more clear to me. And I can't wait for this to be finalized. Uh, another so what one is that? 
It's the replacement for things like Moment.js and DateFNS oh. that will be built into JavaScript. Uh, right. Finally, really good date and time support built in. That's awesome. Another page here I should point out is the Meteor page. So mm. I know you're familiar with Scott Talinsky and Level Up Tutorials and the the Syntax FM podcast. Yes, he's a sponsor. So he is a big fan of both Svelte and Meteor and combining the two. And that got me to take a look at it and see what was really there. And boy, I'm just blown away by that combination. And if you go to that page, there's a key benefits link near the beginning that lists some of the most important things about it, the biggest benefits. And the use of WebSockets in Meteor is really fascinating as a replacement for what you would otherwise use a REST API for using HTTP requests. It makes it so easy to write apps where you need to push changes out to multiple clients and keep them in sync. And then another really big thing is if you're writing an app that needs user account management where people need to sign up for an account, they need to be able to change their password, all those sort of things, that's just a built-in feature of Meteor. So if you combine Meteor with Svelte, you mostly just get that for free. And so this uh, blog page on Meteor walks through an example of building a to-do list app, of course, because that's what you have to do. But it goes beyond that. And it's a to-do list app where you can sign up for an account and you'll get an email back to verify your account. It's storing all the to-dos in a Mongo database because Meteor has really great integration with Mongo. And it keeps the to-dos separated by user within that same Mongo database. It's just amazing how little code you have to write to get all of that. And this blog post goes through all of that using Svelte in conjunction with Meteor. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well. I really wonder why Meteor never took off or why yeah, it I'm, I'm sort looking of died at, off. This, this is you know, Rails for JavaScript. Everyone wants Rails for JavaScript. Meteor yeah. is it. <laughs> I feel like the only the main issue that they had was uh, sticking to their own hand-rolled UI framework for so long. They, they had Blaze. Exactly. That's right. But then also they have this whole separate other ecosystem, like the Meteor package ecosystem, because they predated NPM, which is something I didn't know when I, when I crazy. Uh, tried out Meteor for the first time. <laughs> I don't know. What, what, what do you yeah. think, Mark? <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly right, that they stuck with Blaze for a long time and other frameworks came out. People were interested in those, and so they jumped ship. And then REST became really popular using HTTP, and people kind of forgot about the option of using WebSockets. And, and now I look back at this, and I have to ask myself, wait, why are we assuming that it's better to use HTTP? <laughs> and uh, they yeah. just make it so easy. They call them Meteor Methods. It's just a JavaScript function you write. You don't write any code to do anything <laughs> with WebSockets. It just happens under the covers because you're using <laughs> Meteor. So yeah, it's great. It seems like some of these concepts are coming back in a way. Like, for example, Phoenix for Elixir oh, kind yeah. of works the same way, I think. Okay. WebSockets and just sending diffs over the, rather than the whole document right. between pages. Yeah. It's pretty pretty interesting. React is also looking into it with React Flight. And probably there'll be a sort of new generation of combat between frameworks when, I guess, sockets are back in vogue and when we send diffs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think I, I built a real-time trading system for a large oil company. I won't mention the name of, but it used WebSockets rather than REST for everything. So logging in was via WebSockets as well. It was an interesting experience because I think that there's just not that level of support for WebSockets. I can just sort of whip out my REST client and sort of make a connection to and see what the payload was and the response. And there was no sort of automatic validation or payload passing. So I think that a lot of Meteor methods sound like they sort of built this whole communication protocol by themselves that wraps WebSockets. And I think that when there's a sort of mainstream one of those available off the shelf, that might sort of bolster the WebSockets becoming as sort of omnipresent as REST. But I think, I don't know of one, maybe there is one, I haven't looked very hard into it, but I think that would be a, a massive factor in, in WebSockets becoming more mass adopted than they used to be. Something that's not Socket.io, which obviously is quite large, quite unwieldy. Yeah. I don't know anything about how, it, how it's handled on the server side, but don't you have to keep the socket open, which means that it's hard to scale? Yeah, you do. It's a one-to-one -one thing, isn't it? And serverless sockets yeah, are quite server. rare still. Okay. Hmm. Well, that would be why. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Any any last few questions? Yeah, I have a topic to end things if, uh, if no one else has any questions. 
Sounds good. Yeah, Mark, like quotes seem pretty important to you. They're plastered all over your blog. Could you talk a little bit about why quotes are that important to you? And do you have a favorite one and, and what that means to you? Huh. I think it's just providing some motivation for me. And I see a lot of people that kind of run their lives in a way that doesn't match up with the quotes that you're referring to that are on my blog post. If you click on the quotes link, you'll see them. And most of these are quotes from other people. But there are a few that are just my own quotes, like the very last one, respect the distance, do the work. So that one is related to the fact that I'm a marathon runner. And I see people sometimes thinking that a thing maybe is easier than it really is and not willing to put in the work to get it done. And obviously doing something like running a marathon, there's so much training that comes before the actual race that you need to respect how hard it's going to be the distance and put in the work ahead of time to get the result that you're wanting. And the same thing is true of software development. So I know that people don't want to have their entire lives be studying software development. But I find that if all you're willing to do is put in eight hours a day, it's going to be really tough to progress and learn some new things. So certainly you don't want to run your life by just always studying software development. But there's a distance to learning things and you need to do the work to get the results that you want. Another quote that's in there, don't be a dabbler. If you're going to do something, do it well. So that kind of relates to what I was saying about how I try not to allow myself to just look at something briefly. I don't want to dabble in something. If it's worth doing, I want to do it well. And then I'll move on to something else after I've done it well. Yeah. So those are quotes that I put in from myself, but there are a bunch from Michelangelo that are in here and one from Theodore Roosevelt. My daughter gave me a birthday card one year that had that Theodore Roosevelt quote, which says, far better is it to dare mighty things to win glorious triumphs, even through checkered failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. And so kind of a summary of that is, you need to work on some hard things and you might fail. And that's better than not trying. It's better to dare to do some mighty things, try even though you might fail. And that's also true of software development. Some things are really hard to learn, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It's interesting. I, well, I noticed, yeah. sorry, on your, on your blog, well, on your, on your homepage, rather, you've got a link to English buried in the middle there and how you change <laughs> the English language. And I think that's interesting because... It goes along with what you're saying about you write very concisely and very tersely. And it's because you just leave off words that aren't, you know, they're redundant. I don't know if you've read the book. I think it's called Troublesome Words by Bill Bryson. But he, he has, he's written an entire book on this exact subject that people say lots of redundant fluff that doesn't need to be said because it's obvious. It's kind of implied in the sentence. And I think it, it, this, this is very similar sort of writing to that. It's very interesting. Yeah, tell me whether or not you like cheese. Well, don't bother with or not because it's possible that you might not. And it's implied in <laughs> if you like it. If you don't, then you don't, exactly. right? right? It's, it's right, interesting. Exactly. <laughs> I need to read that book. Yeah, it's a good book. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, I guess that's it. Do you guys have picks? Could be anything. I do. <laughs> I, I didn't think about Ooh. picks. Oh, yeah, so, so Mark, uh, you know, we, 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 um, we end the episode by, by just talking about things that we've enjoyed or things that we recommend. And then we always look around our desk. Because we always forget it. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have three picks on my desk. This is great, actually. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Well, so Let's hear. my pick from last week, did I talk about the Garmin GPS unit? Yes. I did, right, yes, good, because that's so. on my desk and I wouldn't have covered that. So I've got to pick this instead then. This is my pick. This is, and people listening in audio are able to see it, but this this is a, a tiny little computer on a stick that can run things like Windows because it's a proper Intel processor. It's not like a Raspberry Pi that has an ARM processor. Obviously, you what? would never use it over Raspberry Pi because it's slower, it's more expensive, and fundamentally, it's only if you want to run Windows or something. But it's, uh, I think it's actually... It's some kind of low-end Intel processor. It's got two gigs of RAM. It's got some onboard SSD storage, but it's got it runs off a five volt USB, a single USB, and it plugs wow. into any HDMI port. So you've basically got 
you know, monitoring keyboard, plug the USB in there, done. And it's got a tiny little fan in it because it gets quite warm because it's got like a sort of non, non-efficient processor in it. But it is perfect for browser testing. I can actually keep it running in my house all day long with almost no power usage at all. It's relatively silent because the fan's tiny, only spins up now and then. I just think it's dead useful. You know, if you need to do anything Windows locally, I don't use Windows locally, so I don't have a Windows machine apart from this. It's perfect for that kind of thing. So I think that would be my pick is just just the handiness of having a pocket-sized Windows machine on hand when those those rare occasions when I have to boot into Windows to do something. Nice. I didn't know there were like stick computers. That's yeah, no I, I, I just Googled it one day because I thought this is what I want and it exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Mark, you have a, a pick here. Yes. I was planning to make my pick be Meteor, but I've already talked about that a lot. I could have also <laughs> picked uh, the JavaScript temporal library, but we've already talked about that. Yeah, and so I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, I, I will pick uh, Jupyter Notebooks. So mm. as I've been diving into Python, that leads you into looking at Jupyter Notebooks, and it's just fascinating. So in general, the idea behind a Jupyter Notebook is that you've got this vertical series of cells, and each cell usually either holds markdown or it holds a snippet of code. And so you use this for experimenting with different things in a programming language, and the markdown is there to document what you're doing. And so in the case of Python, you might have a markdown block, then a Python block, then another markdown block, then a Python block. But all the code blocks are really part of the same bit of code. So if you declare a variable in one block, and then you can use it in a subsequent block, and then later you can export that as one Python file and run it as one program. Well, it turns out that you can also use JavaScript with this. So there's a Node.js uh, kernel that you add to Jupyter. And then those code blocks can be JavaScript instead of Python. Also, recently VS Code added support for Jupyter Notebooks. So a Jupyter Notebook is just a JSON file. And if you open it inside VS Code, you can do the same things right inside VS Code. Those code blocks, when you execute them, it shows the output of that bit of code right below that block. And so it's a great way for experimenting with code, kind of like a REPL, but even better because of your ability to split up the code into separate blocks and insert those markdown blocks. So I highly recommend taking a look at Jupyter Notebooks. Yeah, sounds good. I dropped a link in the chat of my documentation of what I've learned about Jupyter. Cool. All right. Sean, what is this? I don't like this. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I was, was going to say, uh, I love how you write down your learnings for everything that you come across. It's something that I really like learning in public, but I think you are a master at this and I'm just very impressed by your by your blog. <laughs> I would also recommend, have you checked out Observable? Since you are a fan of D3, Mike Bostock, who created D3, also created Observable, which is kind of Jupyter, but for the JavaScript ecosystem. Yeah, I have seen that, that but I haven't learned how to use it yet. I mean, from what I could tell, it's exactly the same as <laughs> as um, Jupyter. Um, oh, okay. Just that it self it self hosts the JavaScript, so you can just interact with it while it's running. Okay. But yeah, cool. So I'll, I'll go next. So Tailwind is a CSS library, which uh, it's it seems like Kevin is not a not a huge fan of. Um, <laughs> Rich is Rich is also not a huge fan. Uh, I don't know why it's so hard. I should probably write a blog post about why Tailwind and Svelte go together. And it might seem like an odd choice because. Svelte, you know, obviously has scoped CSS next to it, but even even with those benefits, I think Tailwind comes with it. They've recently sort of been picking up in terms of their commercial efforts, and they hired a, a new developer, Simon, who kind of got me started on this whole journey. And he just put out a YouTube series, kind of detailing what's new in Tailwind, and it really gives you the taste of of what it's what it's about, like what the benefits are. So, for example, imagine adding animations just by adding a single class name. So, like if you need something to bounce when something someone's hovering over it, or for example, with, with Svelte, like when you do a, like a class binding to that class name and it's an animation, typically in CSS, you'd have to do a bunch of like keyframes here and then like put the animation on the thing. And then with Tailwind, it's just like a single class name. And, and I think those are really good examples. And he launched a series of like 12 YouTube videos, very short, takes like half an hour to go through them to see what's up in Tailwind. So that's my pick. Nice. Yeah, I should we'll watch those videos because I haven't quite come on board with Tailwind yet. Maybe I can if I watch the videos. For now, my hangups are that I feel like 
if I'm going to add a bunch of tailwind classes to an element, right away I'm making the statement that there's nothing else in my app that wants that combination of things. I'm kind of opting out of sharing that because I've said, no, this is specific to this one element. So I need to figure out how to get over that if I can. And then the other is that when I'm looking at a Svelte component, I feel like if it's just HTML, I can clearly see the structure of this thing that I'm building, and it's not clouded by a bunch of CSS classes being added to it. And I feel like if I move everything out of the style block onto the HTML elements, now the structure of my HTML isn't going to be as clear to me. So those are my current hangups. Yeah. I think the one thing I, I have against Tailwind is, isn't so much like how it works. It's more like the support overhead that seems to come with it. A lot of people seem to have troubles integrating Tailwind into different projects because you have to use the purge thing, right? The the auto, what's it called? Post-CSS. Which has been built in to Tailwind now, so it comes right, by default with right, no, no yeah. config. But some people, or at least from my point yeah. of view, seem to have a problem getting this to work correctly. And then they they show up oftentimes in the Svelte Discord to ask Tailwind specific <laughs> questions. So so it, it kind of it's like a negative feedback loop for me. Sure. Gets I don't want to make this a Tailwind discussion. Irritating. I'll, I'll write a blog post. I have responses yeah. to all of yeah. these. Yeah. Cool. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so my pick. It's Svelte Summit. It's just a couple of weeks to to Svelte Summit. I think three mm -hmm. weeks or so. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. We have some super interesting talks coming up. Three of them announced so far. And when this airs, a couple of more. Uh, yours among them, Mark. So so far, we have Elder.js and Penguin's uh, REPL talk. And then also the one that I'm super excited about, the Cloudflare Worker talk by Luke. It seems super interesting. Yeah, that's it. All right. Thanks for coming on, Mark. Yeah, thank you so uh, much for on, having me. Hang on. I got to do yeah. one of these. This is, we got to. The audience has been very, very kind, very quiet throughout the whole recording. So yeah. they came in. It's, came been, it's be, become to sound very strange that now, because actually, Sean, on my screen, you're frozen completely and you have been for a while. So it sounded almost like water pouring <laughs> off a roof. It was very odd. <laughs> I think I picked right. the wrong the wrong sound. This one, this one's better. This one with more oh, that's the best. Yeah, much much more, yeah. <laughs> more recognizable. <laughs> On that note, that's it for this week. We'll uh, talk to you in a couple of weeks again. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you.